You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Cynthia Tulin, and I'm here with Francis Etheridge on my show, Author to Author. Uh, Francis and I have done many, many interviews together, and today we're going to interview on a book called Human Nature, Moral Norm. How are you, Francis? Very well. I mean, customarily, we begin with a prayer. Shall I? Yes, I was just going to ask you if you'd like to start. Okay, so invoking as we do, Mary, seat of wisdom, uh, we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Spirit. So, how many books have you written now, Francis? Well, this is the 14th. Mm. uh, Not yet published. The other 13 (laughs) are published, but this one is waiting in the wings, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, We're hoping the final contributions will come in not too far into the future. Mm-hmm. The, in a way, it's a very difficult book. It goes back a long way to an MA thesis at the beginning of marriage 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, that difficult history, nevertheless, over the years and a number of reworkings, has brought to the fore, if you like, a simple principle that... Being open to life is being open to relationships. Conversely, uh, if we engage in anything that obstructs that openness, uh, and I mean obstruct, not just Mm -hmm. um, recognize there are different times of fertility and infertility, but if we obstruct that openness, it seems like what we're actually saying is we're not open to relationships. And this seems to work across a number of bioethical fields. If I think of the other elements, so for example, um, loneliness and the response of euthanasia. If someone's suffering loneliness, um, they can be put forward for euthanasia rather than engaged in a relationship to remedy the loneliness. Mm -hmm. So... There seems to be an underlying principle, we can say, in contraception, in the culture of death as a whole, which is about the denial of relationships. It's also evident in, if you like, the abortion culture. One of the prime obstacles seems to be um, the woman can't bond with the child because the relationship to the child is being obstructed possibly Mm -hmm. by circumstances, but more probably by um, the husband or the partner not wanting the child or pressure from parents or grandparents. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But the principle that seems to apply also is it's a denial of relationship that as soon as the woman begins to recognize this is a child and begins Mm -hmm. to bond, so it becomes more difficult 
to consider the possibility of it being a pregnancy that she wants to end. Mm -hmm. Really, this book, for all its difficulty and its longevity in terms of preparation, has arrived at a rather simple starting point, and that is being open to life is being open to relationships. And we could almost start with um, St. Joseph and Mary in the uh, mystery of the Annunciation, that Mary, in her relationship to God, is open in her yes to conceiving Christ in the flesh, the eternal Son of God being incarnate, becoming flesh. St. Joseph's relationship to her, he sees the the child, but is unsure of the origin of the child. But once he accepts, as from the dream, that actually the child is from God, again, his relationship to God, which that implies, it opens for him a relationship to Mary that is already there, but also and significantly to the child Jesus. So even within the Holy Family, there is this implication of being open to life, is being open to relationships. Mm -hmm. This really is where, if you like, the work on the book really took a simplicity out of what was otherwise a very challenging work, because it begins with, attempting to answer the question that if the moral norm be open to life arises out of human nature as a fruit of that nature as integral to it then it's not something superimposed upon it it's not if you like a law that's been laid over human Mm. nature that we are called to be open to life in the context of being married and particularly being uh, being a Christian marriage because um, the opposite view is that there is some kind of biologism at work that somehow the church or philosophers or theologians have argued that because there exists a rhythm in the woman's cycle that canonizing that is, as it were, canonizing biology. And so one of the first stages, as it were, of the book is to look at the nature of the human person from the point of view of in what does it consist? That if we consist, for example, of natural laws that entail in the case of the woman, the cycle of fertility and infertility, in the case of uh, both man and woman, in the processes that govern being a person from, or being a person becoming manifest from conception and its unfolding. So there are myriad laws, as it were, which operate beyond conscious control. But at the same time, as they emerge into consciousness, as in the case within marriage and the decision uh, to be open to life, then there is a recognition that actually what we possess 
is not something that is being imposed upon it. And I speak as a husband and a father. It's not something that is imposed upon us. It rather arises out of the nature of being in relationship. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you look at human nature from the point of view of its ingredients, as it were, on the one hand, there are unconscious laws, uh, right from the point of view of the activity within cells, as in terms of the physiological development of respectively the man and the woman, the husband and uh, the wife. But there are within that the, the development of what becomes conscious. And so you have, if you like, a certain relationship whereby what enters into our consciousness is the identity of this gift of husband and wife giving themselves to each other totally. And so the totality of that gift is not something we invent as husband and wife. It is something present as the totality of the gift is implied in the nature of love between husband and wife. That if it's described as a complete self gift and in that sense is something I yield, as it were, this uh, gift that I possess, as indeed my wife yields her corresponding gift, then this is implicated within giving ourselves to each other. So we don't, I, we don't impose a psychological structure to the self-gift within marriage. Rather, it arises out of the fact that if we do give ourselves in an unimpeded way to each other, the identity, the inner identity, the inner psychological and spiritual identity of that reciprocal self-giving is openness to life. Mm -hmm. I am not withholding my masculinity. I'm not withholding the possibility of fatherhood. Uh, likewise, my wife is not withholding the possibility of motherhood. She's not withholding her femininity. So there is inscribed within the very structure of our being, masculine and feminine, husband and wife, a openness to life, which is rather for us, if you like, to regulate as husband and wife, or in the language of Pope John Paul II, it would be to say, we are ministers of what we are given. And um, so on the one hand, then, we can describe everything, as it were, in terms of the operation of conscious and unconscious laws that nevertheless run into each other, make a whole. And therefore, there is the question of if this is true, then the presence of truth is within us in that we have rightly identified what is the human structure, either as a man or as a woman or in the, the communion of marriage. So then there's the relationship of truth being embedded. We don't make it true because we discern that there is a reciprocal gift uh, which constitutes marriage. Rather, if it's true, it's present in us. So you, we begin to see that the human person is not a disembodied, value-free 
um, entity. Rather, we are implicitly expressing an embodied truth in different ways. Physiologically, in terms of the laws of nature, we, get, we are giving a face to what it is to be human. But we didn't choose what it is to be human, but we are recognizing that it's present in us as a law. We're also recognizing that if this is true, truth is present in us. And so the first part of the book really struggles to identify, if you like, a metaphysical structure to the human person, to the human being. A metaphysical structure that by implication doesn't allow a divorce between being a person and the moral norms which flow from being a person. Mm -hmm. So when it, the claim is made that um, the church, for example, to take a particular criticism, is canonizing biology, it's overlooking the fact that the biology is an inherent part of being a person. Mm -hmm. And so it's implicated in being a true person, that the constitution that we've rightly identified is true independently uh, in that it exists in us. And therefore, to express a moral norm is to begin to see that we can put into words, as it were, what is embedded within us. And so when a moral norm that obliges us to act in a certain way, uh, to respect the mysteries of procreation, of the reciprocal giving between husband and wife, that obligation arises out of the fact that we are intrinsically moral. Because if truth is present in us, if law, as it were, is embodied in every aspect of our being, then it's not alien that we can objectify this in describing a relationship then between possessing a human nature and it being expressed in a moral norm. So that's one of the early struggles, as it were, out of which the book arose, to make plain that there isn't a divorce within human nature whereby we can say, we are made up of biological characteristics, psychological characteristics, spiritual characteristics. Rather, these are integral to one another. So while we could call it um, a spiritual relationship between husband and wife and indeed God in prayerfully uh, considering the possibility of the conception of a child, psychologically, the structure is inbuilt within us that if we are not going to lie, to use an expression of Pope John Paul II, and we are going to give ourselves fully to each other, then there is already within our nature a psychological structure that expresses to be open is to give everything. And that is not something we've invented. It's not something that's been imposed upon us by the church. It's rather something which flows from the very fact of recognising that if I am in relationship to my wife and we are in agreement uh, of being in open to the possibility of conceiving a child, then that is flowing out of our nature as husband and wife. It's not being imposed upon it. 
So the more one considers then the different aspects of being a human person, it's not so much that one is superimposed upon another, it's rather one expresses a different dimension that the other doesn't but needs. So, for example, that the whole um, attraction between husband and wife has its own characteristics which um, develop this impulse to conceive a child or to be in communion, uh, the one not excluding the other, as it's famously said in uh, Humani Vitae, you know, to be in communion is not to exclude the possibility of procreation. Procreation does not exclude the possibility of communion. So um, it's looking at human nature in such a way then that truth, moral norms, law aren't something that are separable within us. They are rather integral within us. And as such, express the more uh, greater, as it were, eternal law, the law that God has brought to exist in bringing us to exist. So that we see the whole thing is unfolding a vision of the creator, which uh, invites us to see that every element of what he has created in being male and female is drawn into because it's already expressing a truth that God himself has chosen to be constitutive of us. So it's not as if it's arbitrary to be a man or it's arbitrary to be a woman. It's rather constitutive of the fact that his whole dynamic, as it were, in being God is to communicate the possibility of relationship between us as man and wife. And so if this follows from his own identity as being uh, the Blessed Trinity, three persons in one God, then he has embodied this in very concrete ways in the nature of human love. So that the sense in which there is, a, if you like, a value-free biological structure doesn't exist because it's embedded within a psychological structure which is also embedded within if you like a relationship structure or a, a relational nature so that we look towards the other whether the other is the husband or the wife or indeed God you know the implication is is that everything that we are is ordered to relationship and in being so ordered it brings with it um, not a value-free description but rather everything possesses value because of its ordering both to God and to each other so there's certainly a lot of work there in the early part of the book but mm -hmm. then it developed it became clear that it's better to recognize the relational nature more explicitly because it, it can become very abstract to talk of a metaphysical structure to human being in such a way as there is no, you know, a true moral norm proceeds from all that's true within human being, but it can mm -hmm. seem very abstract. And so um, 
as time went on, I began to invite people and even consider myself, what are the, what is the human experience that corroborates or expresses this reality? I mean, in terms of, you know, my own history as a sinner, it was very concrete for me um, when I was illicitly involved with another person that the inability to give myself totally is very concretely expressed in whatever kind of contraception a person will have recourse to. So the very nature of immorality is also expressing something which is also true, but it's true by its pointing to the opposite, that it, it became a question for me as to why I couldn't commit myself to this person, which is really to say, I wasn't committed in the first place. I wasn't married to this person. I hadn't entered into a full gift of myself, nor was I in receipt of a full gift of this other person. And so even negatively, we can see that what is happening is there is a frustration of the desire to give oneself wholly, this total gift. And it is a frustration, it's, and it is an un therefore an unnatural act and so in many respects even the negative experience of contraception in its various ways confirms the positive meaning that really arises out of us that love entails a gift and a wholesome gift and a total gift and so it confirms it and so there are various accounts in the book not just my own but of different ways that when people, as it were, entertain contraception, they seem to suffer in their relationship to another person. So it always seems to involve the fact that one or other of the parties don't want to be fully committed. And so it brings us back to this, uh, if you like, human experience, that we're not inventing um, what it is to be uh, a human person. We're rather discovering negatively that there's a kind of reflex, that if we depart from a moral norm, it kind of rebounds on us and starts to make us question, why is it that uh, I can't give myself fully to this other person? And it rebounds in a way that, uh, if you like, points ahead to the fact that well, then what is missing? You know, what is missing from this uh, expression of love? And we then end up returning to the wholeness of the human being, the implication that if there is a child, for example, or the possibility of one, that it involves me in a relationship as a father. It involves the woman in the relationship as a mother. And so Again, there's this kind of negative confirmation that if a couple can't be open to each other, that they are actually unable to be in relationship to each other. And that kind of rebounds and makes a person consider, well, what then is the path of life? What then is a total love of the other? And it, and it then begins to point towards, well, what will fulfill this? And in many cases, and certainly in my case, it involved faith. 
because I discovered that I didn't have the faith to be open to the wholeness of marriage, to be one with another person uh, indefinitely until death does do part. And so I began to discover in my case, not just that there is a natural law impelling me to look for this wholesome self-gift, but there is also an inadequacy in my own faith that meant the suffering I could see implied in uh, loving one person had no answer. I had no answer to it. So to me, to enter marriage was to enter something like a barbed doorway, and I couldn't bring myself to do it. So there was an experience, which I've mentioned in previous reviews of books, that um, if God can create everything out of nothing, he can make a new beginning for the sinner. And what then occurred was this faith in God as being able to make a new beginning for the sinner enabled me to enter marriage, not just uh, in view of my wife and I deciding this, this was for us, but also in the hope of the help of God. So that being open to life was also about being open to God. So in our prayer uh, was as in the book of Tobit, you know, as um, they, uh, Sarah and her husband went to bed, as it were, they prayed. And it's this prayer that was always at the root of our self-giving in marriage. And insofar as it was answered in this positive way of giving us children, it was very much an anchor so that whatever situations we were entering into or suffering, either because of ill health or poverty or problems with work or study or what to do uh, with specific situations, you know, there was this expression of faith. So faith complemented what I began to understand as the metaphysical structure of the human person. And so very much um, without this gift of faith, I would say, it would have been impossible to uh, welcome, to marry. In my case, it would have been impossible to marry because I was unable to enter, if you like, that barbed gate. But like the cross, it led to the resurrection. So within the mystery of marrying within the Catholic Church, as I returned to it, was this, if you like, word of the resurrection that Christ comes to transform, as he did at the marriage feast of Cana, uh, water into wine. So this prayer life that arose out of our marriage really founded um, our dialogue with each other as it entailed a dialogue with God about being open to children. So it's like revisiting the nature of the Holy Family between St. Joseph and Mary, but revisiting it in a very concrete way as husband and wife, that the dialogue with God was fundamental to our dialogue with each other as husband and wife. So then it looks at a variety of contributions which um, illustrate in one way or another the different aspects of either contraception or being open to life from the point of view of relationship being central to what constitutes us 
as human beings, that we are beings for relationship, if you like. And um, one of the ways then that one begins to consider uh, what is the relationship between um, the formation of conscience and being open to life, if it's present, it can be present in a negative way, as I've said already, that we begin to recoil from our behavior where it doesn't fulfill uh, love as a total self-gift. So there's a kind of natural recoil from behavior which is less than expressive of love. But then there's also the dimension of what we cannot do for ourselves, as it were. And that fundamentally is expressed in the nature of the gift of faith, certainly, that I can hope in God in all the dynamics and difficulties and mysteries of marriage. But then there is also the word of God and its capacity, as Pope Francis says, and indeed a number of recent popes, Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, Pope Francis, have spoken in one way or another of the capacity of the word of God to unsettle us. So when the whole question arose of an erroneous conscience, what of the person who can't see and perhaps doesn't recognise the recoil of their nature from uh, a giving which is not total, but in some form or other is a kind of lie, if love is claimed to be what it is, then the nature of the word of God comes in a way beyond our capacity to, if you like, interrogate ourselves. And it comes with the nature of what the word is itself, capable of really re revealing our inner nature. So even if a person claims that they're, if you like, in, almost locked into an erroneous conscience, a conscience that thinks it's right to be contraceptive and can't see that it's wrong to be so. So they're kind of locked into this mentality. Nevertheless, the nature of the word of God, as proclaimed by these uh, different and successive popes, is that it's capable of opening up what we ourselves can't open. So there is also a whole uh, dialogue within the book as the book progresses about how this inner um, listening to the word of God is always uh, a possibility that God can act rather like um, in the expression that a crack lets in the light. You know, that once there is the beginning of a discovery of what our true nature is, that indeed as a sinner, as a person unable to give themselves totally, this crack that comes from the word of God lets in the light and it, and it opens up the fact of the possibility of recognising that actually my conscience wasn't very well formed that I neither really recognised what was going on in my nature when I was in uh, these various incomplete relationships. But um, So it begins to reveal actually what is going on in the deepest core of a human being, but it reveals it in a way that is constructive. 
you know, because it begins to open upon the horizon of God, open upon the horizon of a change that is beyond me to make, because now I see I am in error. And if truly I was in error and couldn't see my way out of it, as moral theologians argue, one is obliged almost to act according to it. But if one takes it further and puts oneself in front of the word of God, puts oneself in front of an authoritative teaching like the magisterium of the Catholic Church, then one sees that there is a help to human nature's own points of reference, that the very recoiling that's possible from our own imperfect relationships begins to find an echo, an objective echo in a word of God that actually is capable of opening us to the possibility of seeing we are at fault, I am at fault in this imperfect form of loving. And therefore I can seek uh, from the one, if you like, who's conceived the whole mystery of human love. I can seek, you know, forgiveness and the possibility of being enabled to love in this way that really exceeds my human limitations. And so uh, the book works through, in many ways, these different uh, questions and uh, answers, but it doesn't neglect one or the other. And one of the kind of growing, but not really incidental benefits of the research that I entered into was um, discovering that in, in the specific case of the woman to be uh, not to obscure the fertility cycle is actually to be in possession of a perception of her health. That actually as uh, hormonal treatments of one kind or another only uh, quite apart from when legitimately used as medicine can act, you know so taken as a contraceptive they actually obscure one of the basic indicators of the woman's health which is ovulation and um, this was rather startling in its way that there is a science um, that's grown enormously under the patronage of Pope Paul VI and others uh, to investigate the natural rhythms of the woman's cycle. And it's actually tremendously beneficial that the woman knows her cycle um, because it indicates her general well-being. And therefore, if it's obscured by something like contra uh, chemical contraception, it really uh, is profoundly harmful to her. So the whole uh, idea of a medicinal uh, help is completely contradicted, that the, the benefit to the woman of proceeding according to the nature of uh, her own cycle is enormous, because it informs her as to her true health. And this whole, if you like, new development of uh, natural family planning in its various expressions is all about restoring medicine in a very concrete way to the benefit of the of the person concerned 
whether you call that person a patient because they're presented with a particular problem, or just from the point of view of the wisdom of medicine, you know, being available to uh, men and women in a way that has somewhat lost track through preoccupations with contraception and abortion and all these different ways that the essential identity of being male and female is obscured because it's a, an identity that implies relationship and relationship needs um, to be facilitated, uh, you know, by this self-knowledge of each other uh, as husband and wife. Mm. Well, that's pretty profound. <laughs> I mean, really, this this is, you must have thought about this for years. Indeed. Indeed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it does go back 25 years uh, mm-hmm. to an original um, investigation for a, a master's thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, between the criticisms that were made of it at the time and then all the subsequent reading that has developed over the years and the different mm-hmm. inputs Mm-hmm. either from other people or from uh, different sources. Mm-hmm. It has certainly opened up enormously in these different ways that um, there isn't, if you like, a divisible human nature, that we are an integral whole. And mm-hmm. the problem arises if you take a part of it, as it were, and try to subtract it and call it biological you have already ruptured that hole that we are. Because the psychological nature, we can say, is inscribed within the biological nature. I mean, just as in the course of fetal development, you know, there is the constant laying down, as it were, of what makes movement possible, what makes sensation possible. And arising out of that is the psychological perceptions that as... Uh, the child is born and moves and starts to respond to what's going on, if indeed the child hasn't already within the womb in terms of music and all these other things. So there is this much more intimately integral understanding of Mm -hmm. the wholeness of human being uh, Mm -hmm. that then goes on and applies to the adult man and the adult woman as they uh, enter marriage. So what we end up with is something far more, if you like, intimately structured uh, as regards our understanding of human personhood, not mm-hmm. something which is a kind of compilation or a pastiche or a putting together of parts that don't really belong. On the contrary, it's through looking at what it is to be a whole man, what it is to be a whole woman, what it is to enter the wholeness of human marriage that actually these things emerge as coherently belonging to each other. You know, the whole um, physical and psychological and spiritual structure is completely intertwined each with the other, um, both in terms of the relationship of husband and wife, but also of their relationship to God. So Mm -hmm. um, you end up just marvelling at the, the incredible integral Uh, cooperation and diverse expression of the one entity of being a person or being in relationship with such a one. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure that's a book that's going to help a lot of people. Well, I hope they begin with the, if you like, the simple principle that we are made for relationships. Mm-hmm. Unless there's a simple beginning, I think it, it, it's more than possible to be lost in the, the difficulties of the subject, especially yep. in the early chapters. But the later chapters certainly bring that more and more to the fore, as mm-hmm. indeed um, does uh, the help of the word of God emerge as an assistance to our natural reactions when we go astray, as it were. Mm-hmm. So you end up with a very complementary account, uh, just in virtue of drawing together all that's available, you know, the pastoral experience of priests and bishops, the psychological insights, the bodily structure, you know, the whole thing. Uh, the metaphysics, as it were, of being a human person, whereby truth is an embodied reality. It's not something that we impose upon ourselves. It's something that arises out of what we already are, you know, mm-hmm. the incarnate, if you like, an image of God that is very structured uh, and orientated to being in relationship to him and to being in relationship to each other. So when we promulgate a moral norm or we say, I am open to life, it's flowing from the fact that we are already instantiating truth, which is within us, that we are open uh, to relationship as being a fundamental requirement of our human happiness, never mind our eternal happiness, mm-hmm. but certainly the one implying the other, that if we're not open to relationship, then you know, what are we doing? We're constantly frustrated, even in an everyday ordinary sense in our friendships, or even if they can be called friendships. But then also on an eternal uh, point of view, you know, have we considered that, you know, we will endure after death? And who is it we will know? Or will we not be known? You know, will the Lord say to us, I don't know you? Who are you? You know, where Will there not have been the beginning of that relationship uh, that expresses itself in prayer, in a a fellowship between Christians, in uh, entering a church or entering the Catholic Church? Mm -hmm. In many respects, it's so coherent, it becomes increasingly difficult to understand why, um, if you like, the majesty of being a man and being a woman and entering marriage isn't so visible. You know, and therefore you come back to this converse point of view, which is if you frustrate the principle of relationship, then you are frustrating in a way one of the main, if not the main source that we know who we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there is an expression in the Second Vatican Council, if God uh, ceases to be known, we become unintelligible to ourselves. And I think how profoundly true this is, because if God himself is ordered to relationship, as it were, in being the mystery of the Blessed Trinity, then clearly if we are made in his image and likeness, we are ordered to relationship, um, Mm -hmm. whether to friendship generally or to marriage specifically or to a a ministry in the Mm -hmm. church. Yeah. 
That's a good answer. And it's, you know, once you start talking about it, it's all very reasonable. So I think that uh, the way you present things um, in your book and the way you talk, um, you know, I think that that's going to help people understand. So that's the, that's a real plus. Well, that would be a wonderful uh, gift if this... Uh, one of the most difficult books to be brought fruition ends up being beneficial to people, uh, especially if they persevere with it, because it's not in every respect an easy read. But it does have a lot of wonderful accounts of people's experience in it, which I think helps bring out that uh, the underlying principle is to be open to relationships, is to be open to life. It, it's mm -hmm. not... Um, different from that but it at times can be difficult to see it in its simplicity because mm -hmm. of ways that we rebel if you like in recognizing who and what we are and our experience can cloud our judgment certainly so in terms of your own experience would you like to elaborate anything that would sort of confirm or contradict what um mm -hmm. been I yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, of course, as most women my age, uh, when we were young, we were feminists and, um, you know, uh, fell into that trap. Yeah, I mean, there is a good feminism where, you know, it's in line with the church, but uh, fortunately, I grew up and realized it was wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, the people that I hung around with um, in grad school uh, and you know just when I was going for the BA they were all uniformly pro well pro-abortion and and certainly pro-contraception and they never saw what that would do to them as people so one of those women um, that I knew for many years uh, ended up she had six abortions while she was in grad school right. and then she finally married and she wanted a child the first one she had she miscarried the second one she lost when she was on an airplane and the um uh, something happened to the pressure and she lost the baby so right. she was pregnant nine times before right. she had a child and right. look at that and it's like it's you know that's not open to anything that's just that's just a closed, closed person. Um, but so what you're saying makes sense to me. And I think that it's something that, uh, that people know at some level, but not, it's not, it's not something that's right there. It's something that has to be drawn out. Um, and I think that if they start to get that, uh, a sense of it before they're, you know, without someone else's help or without reading something that tells them this, um, I think they try to shut it down. Because we do live in a very contraceptive um, and still abortion-oriented society, and people buy into the poison. So I think that, you know, you may have a poison antidote there. And, uh, you know, people, you know, people's minds can be changed. Um, mm -hmm. If they see something and they say, oh, wow, I was wrong, or, 
you know, if, if there's not too much pride. So I do think that um, just that concept, which we all know, but probably have never, I've never formulated it. I don't know anyone who has except you, is that to, to be, you know, to be open to children really is to be open to relationship and vice versa. And that's something I've never heard before, but the minute you said it, it resonated with me. So I think you're absolutely right that the culture in which we live does obscure our perception of even even our natural reactions. They can be overlaid with a whole sort of cultural language of permissiveness or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But one of the redeeming natures of the love of God is I've lost a child to abortion is mm-hmm. that the child isn't lost. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're right. This woman who had six abortions, tragic as it is, she is nevertheless the mother of those six children, as indeed there is a father or Mm -hmm. various fathers, depending on the situations. Mm -hmm. Those children are not lost. That's right. The emphasis on that is certainly one of the fantastic consolations of the Christian faith, but also philosophically that we understand the nature of the human soul endures because it it is in certain respects um, an activity that transcends our physicality mm-hmm. and I, the very nature of that demonstrates that there is something then that perjures that exists beyond the mm-hmm. deterioration of our physicality at mm-hmm. death and this even gives us a natural hope of the resurrection, as St. Thomas Aquinas says. But not only that, it gives us a natural hope for the endurance of these children who have been either miscarried or aborted or lost in whatever way, tragic or otherwise. <laughs> and I think that is an immense help to the healing of yeah. women. Mm-hmm. You know, and one can even think, especially I think of this child, Charlie, as interceding, even if I don't know whether Charlie was a girl or a boy, I nevertheless can think of this child interceding for me and mm-hmm. may well be more instrumental in this moment of conversion I spoke about, reading the mm-hmm. Catechism of the Catholic Church at 40. It may have been more instrumental than I will ever know, except when I meet this child, in hopefully, in the hereafter. Mm-hmm. And so I do think sometimes of this witness, this cloud of witnesses of the unborn. You Mm -hmm. know, they exist. Mm -hmm. They exist in the mystery of the love of, the presence of the love of God. And I wonder, you know, often, what is their power of intercession? You know, that, uh, and who knows, and will we ever know until we enter heaven, hopefully, what the the fruit of these relationships that transcend what we've done, that transcend mm-hmm. the sin that harmed them, that transcends the wrong done to them. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully there will be something like a, an absolute blooming of forgiveness and reconciliation mm-hmm. and, you know, the fruits of eternal life will just pour out of... Uh, people who suffered so much from what they've done here but perhaps haven't grasped that there are those interceding for them who have gone before them because of our own fault and sin Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I agree. So this is all, um, I think this is all very good. And I think that uh, people who read this, people who uh, hopefully listen to or watch this podcast, um, even if it doesn't, uh, even if the people who listen or watch aren't affected and repeat it, then someone who may need to hear it will. Um, you know, so I do consider this very much a radio mis- ministry. It was Sebastian that gave me that terminology. But I do think that um, originally I started this because I wanted to make sure that people knew about good Catholic books as opposed to walking into Barnes and Noble and finding not good books. And um, more recently, as, uh, as I've gotten more deep thinkers, I think that uh, it can have much more of an impact than saying to people, this is a book you should read that's good. They're going to get a taste of uh, what it is to live a fully Catholic life and what that means. So um, I think this is a, a good example of that. So so would you like to end with a prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Oh. Hail Mary, full of grace, the, the Lord. Lord. Blessed are among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, thank you once again, Cynthia. Oh, thank you. I always enjoy interviewing you. So you uh, keep up the good work. Okay, thank okay. you. Yeah, right. yeah. God bless. Okay, Bye. take care. Bye-bye. Hello, God's beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.